Hello, and welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Associate Professor of Geography, Jessica Graybill, who's also the Russian and Eurasian Studies Program Director at Colgate. Professor Graybill's research focuses on the Arctic, climate social science, energy geographies, social ecological systems, participatory and cognitive mapping, and environmental ethics. Her work has been funded by the National Science Foundation, a Fulbright Science and Innovation Award, the Belmont Forum, and Colgate's Picker Interdisciplinary Science Institute. Professor Graybill earned a Bachelor of Science in Geosciences and a Bachelor of Arts in Russian Language and Literature from the University of Arizona. She earned her master's degree in geosciences from Yale University and her PhD in geography and urban ecology from the University of Washington. Professor Grable, welcome to 13. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's great to be here. We're glad to have you. I will jump right into question one. Wonderful. So much of your work focuses on the impact of climate change in the Arctic. Tell us a little bit about how you became interested in that subject. Oh, that's a good story. So when I did my PhD research, um, I was working on Sakhalin Island, which is in the subarctic. And I was looking at the impact of oil and gas development on natural resource use. So things like uh, people taking fish out of the waters for their own personal use. And I was trying to understand the perceptions of land use change on fish take. So that was really my big interest there. It became clear that the, the resource issues were not the only thing going on, but also that climate was shifting. And often when people talk about climate change, they talk about weather changes, just like we do around here. Mm -hmm. We talk about either a big snowstorm or the fact that snowstorms are later than they used to be or they don't last all winter, all those kinds of things that you hear in, in this part of upstate New York. And so as I finished um, my dissertation, I got more interested in thinking about climate change um, it, as an addition to thinking about natural resource extraction. So um, it just seemed natural to keep moving north in terms of exploring those questions from the subarctic into the Arctic. Further north. Further north. <laughs> That's right. Um, so I want to ask uh, one big question up front, uh, and this is essentially the first line that's on your website, jessicagraybill.wordpress.com. You write, energy development and use, climate change, human and environmental security. How do we, or for how long can we keep living as we do without creating environmental insecurity for ourselves and for future generations? How long? That's a really good question. So I teach here on, on campus climate and society, and I'm teaching it right now. And it's a class I teach about once a year. Um, and I ask these very same questions rhetorically in the classroom as well. And I talk through this with students, and there's no clear answer to that. Um, and the reason there's no clear answer to that is it's precisely about our choices. This is about human choice on how to live on this planet. So right now, if we continue to sort of use resources and ship stuff around, say from someone like Amazon, like we do now, we're going to burn through the ability to live in this way pretty quickly, mm. right? To keep living this way pretty quickly. But if we make some pretty radical changes, we might be able to keep living a pretty comfortable, consumer-driven lifestyle for a lot longer. It's all going to depend on the choices we as humans make in terms of how we uh, use the world, how we think about resources, how we think about greenhouse gas emissions, and all that good stuff. The most sustainable lifestyle 
is going back to being a subsistence dweller. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody <laughs> wants to do that. So it's going to be all about our choices in the future as to how we move goods around this world, what kinds of gases we put into the atmosphere, and how we decide to sink those back down into Earth. In 2015, you spent a year in Russia thanks to a Science and Innovation Fulbright Award to study the social and cultural geographies of climate change in Vladivostok. Did I pronounce it right that time? You got it perfect. All right. uh, which is the largest city in Russia's far east and actually not very far from the northernmost part of North Korea. Before we get into that work, can you paint a picture of Vladivostok, maybe like postcard style for people unfamiliar with that part of the world? Sure. Vladivostok uh, is situated on a little peninsula right next to North Korea, right on the ocean. And it is a city of approximately 600,000 people. And if you could imagine sort of a Soviet uh, city that might be changing a little bit in the post-Soviet era, that's what you've got going on. And so what does that mean? That means you have big apartment block buildings, monolithic in style. They look like big concrete curtains on the ground if you look at them from, from say, a satellite view. Um, so lots and lots of those kinds of apartment buildings uh, up to from five to up to nine floors high. So a lot of really condensed, densely populated city area. Um, and it's mixed in with um, new sort of developing uh, commercial infrastructure, new businesses, um, and, and some cruise ships are coming now into that port as well. Um, it's come back onto the cruise, cruise line sort of trajectory. Uh, so that's kind of interesting and neat, but it's also crumbling. Uh, a lot of the federal dollars for reconstruction have not made it out to the Far East. Um, it was always the one of the least developed large cities within the Soviet Russia, um, and today that that trend continues. So a lot of federal do dollars that are being used for reconstruction don't make it there. So it's kind of like you've got this gritty, gray, crumbling concrete but right in this beautiful setting, right on these big, big rolling hills right up next to a coastline. So if you were to squint um, and look kind of at the horizon, you might think of a San Francisco kind of setting. You have to squint past the Soviet <laughs> buildings. <laughs> but that's kind of, you know, the big hills right on a coastline and a bay that sort of go in and out around an area. It's quite beautiful setting. Nice. Um, so... I guess, you know, in your time there, how did you uh, or what did you learn about how climate change is impacting the city? Well, that's actually a really interesting question, and I'm glad you asked it. <clears throat> um, it is most clear. Well, there's two things that are really clear here um, from the research that I did. One is that flooding is the main issue for Vladivostok regarding climate change. Mm -hmm. And that's not a new concern. That's something that's always happened in the city. You can imagine any coastal outlet area, right, as a river runs through an area down to the coast, out to the ocean, there's going to be places that flood. Um, but that has increased with greater typhoons in the region. So the issues with flooding are really large in that sense, both in terms of water you know, coming in off of the ocean in the form of typhoons, but then also going right back out um, in this coastal area. Um, that sounds like it might be manageable in a place that has pretty steep coastline right down to the water, except for the fact if you start to think about how cold it gets and the fact that some of this, this water that comes on land freezes. And then so you have immense problems with freezing of that water, so turning to ice on the roads, on the sidewalks, etc. And so that's certainly not all year round, but definitely during November, December through about March or so becomes a really big hazard in the city. 
So some of the issues that uh, that Vladivostok faces with climate change are the same they've always faced in terms of the flooding and the icing over of areas. But where this becomes a problem in an urban setting like Vladivostok is the fact that the infrastructure is crumbling and isn't being taken care of uh, from Soviet times, hasn't been taken care of. So you've got crumbling urban infrastructure plus uh, increased flooding, increased icing over, just a really big nightmare for urban residents. So that's one of the big issues. The other one is that um, a lot of the work I do is on climate change perceptions. And what I learned, and, and Russia has long been a climate denier as a nation in terms of admitting that climate change is anthropogenic or human-induced and happening. Um, that has changed in the last eight to 10 years. They've become much more on board with the fact that anthropogenic climate change is real and it's mm -hmm. happening in terms of a national discourse. But that doesn't always play out on the local scale. So one of the things that was exactly one of the things I was interested in is trying to figure out at that local urban scale in Vladivostok how were scientists there thinking about this, and what I found was that many of them just considered anthropogenic climate change to not be an issue at all, to not be an issue, or if it was an issue, it would be an issue for, for us. Mm. So so people would look at me and say, oh, climate change isn't going to affect us because we have all these small seas that protect us from the rising sea levels in the Pacific Ocean, right? These sort of border, border zone, small ocean ba sea basins. But you in America, you're going to suffer. Big trouble. Yeah. yeah. So really interesting in terms of thinking about the science, but also a little bit of a nationalistic rhetoric mm. going on as well. Interesting. In 2019, you undertook a three-day journey from Hamilton to Teriburka, Russia, on the Barents Sea, which is pretty much on the exact opposite side of Russia in comparison to Vladivostok. Tell us what uh, Teriburka is like and why you chose that location to bring students. Oh, okay. Good question. So uh, Teriburka is a tiny little village on the Arctic coast, it's about 700 people officially that live there, probably less from day to day. Um, and so it's absolutely, it's almost catty corner across the entire Russian nation. So on the coast of the Barents Sea, 700 people. Um, it's got the same kind of Soviet apartment buildings up to five floors high that I described for Vladivostok. Um, but the issues are really different. So um, they are still urban in nature in the sense that people are in this compact urban settlement because that's what that's how Soviets built um, from urban scales to village scales. Um, I chose this location because it's the only open access point across the entire Arctic Russian border zone. So the Russian Arctic is a border zone. Mm. And to, yes, the whole thing across the, you know, the 300 some thousand miles of coastline, all of it is a militarized border, border zone. Teriburka is the only open point. And you might think, why, why is there an open point and why this place? Uh, well, it's interesting. This is a border zone uh, through the Soviet period into the post-Soviet period, becoming open only in 2009. And it was opened in 2009, not for any sort of tourism purposes. That would be too light, right, in terms of thinking about a reason. The real reason that this point was opened was for oil and gas development. That's one of the trajectories of my research to understand how oil and gas development impacts local communities and their ecologies. So this place opened in 2009 um, for big trucks that would be operated by Gazprom, 
which is Russia's nationalized gas company. Um, and in 2012, the project stopped. The Stockman oil field was considered not to be viable at that moment in terms of development. And so the project stopped, but the road remained open. So what was once a closed town open to almost nobody has become open to absolutely everybody, both Russians and international people alike. So this teeny tiny little village of 700 people has become this hotspot for tourism, for Arctic tourism in Russia. It's the only place on the Arctic coast in Russia that you or I um, or anyone else could go to see, well, the ocean, right, in the Arctic, or to see something like the Aurora Borealis right in that place. Um, and so the influx of tourists has become mm, unsustainable for this little tiny town. And so one of the things I'm interested in is understanding then the nexus between oil, energy development, uh, oil and gas, and energy development, and tourism in these kinds of communities. Nice. You're also part of a team that earned a $750,000 NSF grant for work called Arctic Frost, Arctic Frontiers of Sustainability, Resources, Societies, Environments, and Development in the Changing North. The award states that it was the first US-based circumpolar initiative of this kind and magnitude after the International Polar Year. Tell us about that work. So the Arctic Frost Initiative um, has been really exciting, and I've been involved with it for, it's, I think we're in the fifth year right now. And so it's been an opportunity to bring together uh, more established scholars alongside early career researchers who are interested in looking at, again, that same nexus of thinking about what kinds of development are happening in, is happening in the north around resources, resource extraction, perhaps tourism as it comes in. And most importantly, we've been working with local communities and indigenous communities to try to understand not only the impacts of those kinds of activities, but how local cultures or local ecologies both um, can perhaps benefit from these activities instead of just simply being impacted by them. So you're going to be teaching a senior seminar that focuses on the theoretical, methodological, and linguistic challenges that underlie serious research in Russian and Eurasian studies. I'm guessing this may have been born from your own personal experiences. Um, tell us about the challenges of studying in these parts of the world where you, you know, typically travel. Yeah, so um, so part of the challenge is um, I'm going to think about the challenges for students first because I've been going to this region for so long that it doesn't feel challenging anymore, which I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, <laughs> but it just is. Um, but some of the challenges I saw with my students this summer, for example, that I took out there, um, I had two really wonderful research um, assistants this summer, um, Isabel Hooker and Yang Zhang. And they were with me all summer, but one of the, and they are Colgate students, they're juniors this year. Um, one of the things that I saw them struggling with being in Russia is just understanding the weight of everything they learn in the classroom in terms of, you know, just like those concrete buildings I told you about, um, the crumbling sort of urban infrastructure that exists just about everywhere. Uh, it weighs on you after a while. It's gray, it's beige, it's falling apart, the roads are awful. Uh, the, the, lim the stock in stores is limited. Um, it's sort of this monotonic landscape often where you just think, how am I going to survive this? Of course, it's gotten a lot, lot better since the 1990s. There's no question about that. But there's still moments that you think, how do people live in this and why would people live in this? And I could see students struggling with that kind of aspect of thinking about 
all those things they've learned in the classroom and read in books, both novels as well as textbooks. I mean, if we go back to Tolstoy and think about sort of that time period, the turn of the last, last century, thinking about the condition of roads and the fact that people would be stuck in mud for like three days trying to go down Russian roads. In some ways, nothing's changed. It's, gotten, it's not three days anymore, but it's certainly a big amount of time just to do daily activities that we do on the fly and don't think about. And so daily life takes a lot of work. And that's one of the things that I can see students sort of weighing in their heads, like, how do I, why would I, why would anyone? But then, you know, flipping from that sort of, you know, their own perspective, their their Western or their Asian perspectives into saying, oh, this is just what it is. And wow, it's a struggle to just make it through the day sometimes. That's not representative of all of Russia, certainly. A Moscow or a St. Sure. Petersburg or even a Vladivostok are doing just fine. But smaller places out out in the countryside, out in rural Russia, it's a different life. So if you had to choose one thing, maybe there's more than one, but if you had to choose one thing, what would you say the most surprising or shocking thing you discovered um, during your time researching climate change in the Arctic? So one of the things, because of the Arctic Frost Grant that you, that you asked about a little bit earlier, I've had the privilege, um, the absolute privilege, of being able to go to um, Alaska, Russia, as well as Greenland, um, to, and to Iceland, to see you know, what's happening in different places and how people are thinking about these things across these different parts of the Arctic. And one of the things I've noted in a lot of those places is that climate change is accepted, anthropogenic climate change is real, you know, people's livelihoods as well as abilities to live in place are changing. Um, and it's, there's a really big concern, and you can sort of sense the weight of that concern in the back of people's minds all the time. Uh, when I visit Arctic Russia, however, that's not always the case. The weight of everyday life, sort of what I just described in terms of thinking about that infrastructure or the struggles that certainly students but myself as well might also find, they come first. And that's a little bit about the hierarchy of needs, right? We're often, you and me both, anyone who's listening to this, is looking to take care of their own personal and familial needs first. Right, before they can think about something as large as climate change and what that might mean, might mean into their futures. Um, the future's a far-off prospect for a lot of people when everyday concerns are right front and center. So while I heard concern about weather changes and possibly about climate changes in different parts of Russia, it was really sort of, a, eh, you know, that's, that's not the top concern. The top concern is, am I going to find the foods I need for my family? Am I going to be able to keep living in this village or is, or is the federal government going to shut this village down and ask me to move to a bigger city where there's more resources and more opportunities for my kids? So, so kind of a mixed bag. We, I heard it, but it was underneath everything else. Scientists recently discovered what they believe to be the oldest puppy ever found. <laughs> Frozen in the permafrost of Siberia, they estimate for about 18,000 years. You can see photos of the pooch, uh, which they nicknamed Doggo. Uh, if you search uh, Ice Age Puppy online, um, is this the beginning of some wild new frozen animal findings? Like, is that one of the uh, things that's going to happen here as things melt? That's a really interesting question. I don't know if you seeded this question with the knowledge that uh, another professor here at Colgate and I took 18 students out to a different part of um, Siberia this summer. Totally did that on purpose. <laughs> Excellent. I thought maybe. <laughs> so Professor Mike Loranti, who's also in the geography department, and I took 18, fully 18 students 
out to um, the Far Eastern Arctic uh, this past summer. And we went through Moscow, through the city of Yakutsk, up to a very, very small settlement called Chersky, and then from Chersky to the Northeastern Science Station, where we, uh, along the way, observed all sorts of different things about the urban condition, the rural condition, and then talked about permafrost science. Uh, and one of the things, we, we, we actually went out hunting for mammoth bones one day um, in, in a place called Duvaniyar, which was really, really exciting because you have that come to life, you know, right in front of your eyes, seeing melting permafrost along a riverbank and be able to sort of pull it apart with your fingers to pull out a bone uh, is hugely exciting. Yeah. And one of the things we learned about in the city of Yakutsk uh, was are the, are the bone hunters, the mammoth bone hunters that come in here. And so mammoth is... Um, sought after because, well, it's just plain exotic, right? But there's also a whole lot of ideas about reviving the mammoth. So people are out there looking for blood, for DNA samples, and that's another story for another day. Um, but in terms of finding this doggo, this this puppy, um, I think that those kinds of uh, things are going to crop up more and more as the permafrost melts. Um, and of course, in terms of understanding prior species and prior life, that will be really exciting. But it's going to come at a really big cost to us today in terms of thinking about keeping that carbon dioxide and the methane in the permafrost, in the ground. As that goes out into the atmosphere, our climate's going to change even more. Um, and Siberia is a big, big repository big reservoir for these kinds of gases. Hmm. So good and bad. <laughs> so like many other areas of scientific discovery, you know, findings are constantly in debate. And as someone who has traveled extensively to study the impacts of climate change, you've talked a little bit about what some of the people in, in some of the locations think about um, the climate change. Do you, do you find yourself... Um, do you generally just record what people say, even if they're completely off? Do you find yourself struggling and trying to explain things to people that maybe don't understand or have a different point of view? Or, you know, I'm, I'm curious how you approach that when you're talking to people in these different places. That is such a great question. And, and this one, I get pulled back and it tears me apart inside, right? This pulls me back and forth inside. So the, the, the scientist in me says, you have to listen. You have to just record you cannot sway minds. You just need to take what people say as data. And I do that as much as I can. Um, but there are moments when I'm hearing something like, oh, and say in Vladivostok, oh, climate change, those rising sea levels aren't going to affect us. It's going to affect you as Americans. There are moments where I just sort of step back and sort of I try to keep my science brain on, but sometimes my activist or just maybe even just human brain comes on and I try to say, well, hang on a second, let's think about this logically together. Um, in, an, in an urban place like Vladivostok, maybe it's not so much of an issue, but if you get out in these little towns where there's really a lack of knowledge, and that's not true just of Russia, that's true of a lot of places around the world where access to information is less. Um, so we could be pointing at smaller cities or towns in the U.S. as well. Uh, this just my work just happens to be in Russia for this. So if you get out to these small places where people don't have a lot of access to to really factual information about climate change, I do try to give them some of that information. Now there's a fine line there between giving them information and scaring the pants off them, right? And so that's something I've had to try to figure out how to navigate both my science persona and my activist or in, or educational persona in terms of getting data 
but also wanting communities to do well and be resilient into the future. That's a hard one. I bet. <laughs> In your study of urban ecological issues, your work has recently taken you to Earlville, New York, which is about five miles from Colgate, and it's a village of about 750 people. What are you doing there? I have turned my attention to thinking about places more local when I am not off working in the Arctic. And part of the reason for that is looking around um, all the places in central New York where we live, all the little villages um, near Hamilton. So we can think of Poolville, we could think of Earlville, Smyrna, Morrisville, et cetera, all these little tiny villages. Uh, they're still thriving, right? They're still here. Uh, but they're also not thriving at the same time, right? They're, they've got populations, but they're very small. They don't have a lot of services. And I think last year, um, last academic year, I, I noticed a new Dollar General going into Earlville. And I noticed at the same time, roughly the same time, that that marked the closure of, a, of the small independent grocery store in the in the center at, at the crossroads. Is that Earlville. Big M? It was well, it was Little M, and oh, then it was Ridzies. Oh, okay. so it was Little M, and then it turned into an independent Ridzies. Um, and so I know that Ridzies closed because Dollar General moved in. And so this is a phenomenon across rural America. It's kind of like the Walmartization of America, but the dollar generalization of rural America. And this may not be a good thing or a bad thing, but it's certainly a phenomenon that needs explanation and exploration by, by researchers. Um, now, Earlville's never been, never been researched by anyone at Colgate. And I figured, well, now is a good time to start. Earlville's got the little the, the opera house, which yep. is on the Register of Historic Buildings. Na National Historic Places. Thank you. I don't know exactly <laughs> what the register is. I should really know that, <laughs> but I don't. Um, and, and, you know, it's got a really nice little centrally located downtown area. Mm -hmm. The Earlville Free Library does fantastic services for the entire community, and they are the hub of the, of the whole community. Um, and so when you watch a Dollar General go up on the outskirts, I know it's hard to call a village of 750 thinking that it ha might have outskirts, but it does. Um, you start to think, is that uh, going to be a trend that continues in these little old villages here in upstate New York? And maybe we should be thinking about how to not do that. Mm. Or if that's what people want, how do we do it well so that the, that the downtown areas, right, the, the now hollowed out urban cores, if you will, even when we're talking about a village of 750 people, still has a core. How do, we, how do we think about making those still vibrant places? So that's my research interest there. Neat. In 2020, you'll be teaching an extended study course titled Oil and Water. Tell us about that. <laughs> so I'm co-teaching that with uh, Professor Kira Stevens from okay. the History Department. Um, and, and Professor Stevens and I led this uh, trip in 2018 as well um, with wild success as we say, from students. <laughs> we weren't sure this was going to be such a success, but students raved about it. Um, and we start in Uzbekistan, and we drive across much of the Silk Road, looking oh, at neat. historic sites along the way and talking about the use of water resources. Uh, we make it all the way um, to the RLC, uh, the de desiccated RLC that was a huge natural resources disaster um, that happened during the Soviet period due to overuse of the water for irrigation of cotton crops. Mm. So we talk about water resources all through um, Uzbekistan, uh, thinking about those urban settlements and then more rural places like where you'd grow cotton all the way to a sea that we, we humans made disappear. And then we uh, hop back on a plane and go over to Baku, Azerbaijan, uh, to look at the use and the perhaps misuse of oil resources in that region. Uh, Baku is a 
major oil uh, production area and has been for about 100 years. So we take a look at that and we actually make it out to an oil spa where we bathe in oil. <laughs> so fully immersing ourselves, if you will, um, in this idea of understanding water and then oil resources. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a wild trip and a whole lot of fun. And that's I'm going to attribute that to Professor Kira Stevens. Mm, sign me up. <laughs> We're at question 13. Wow. How, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, here we go. Uh, so given the considerable time you spend in some seriously cold climates... I'm curious. It makes me wonder, where do you go when you're looking for a break? Does a climate <laughs> scientist uh, take her time off in the Bahamas? <laughs> That's a great question. So my time off is either spent reading a book curled up in bed <laughs> or I am headed to Arizona, which is where I'm originally from. Oh, very nice. So I've been, even though I study cold places – my heart and my home is Tucson, Arizona, and that's where I go to really remember, to, to ground myself and get right back to, to where I'm from. Fantastic. Professor Grable, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That was 13. Uh, special thanks to Colgate student Kate Norton, a member of the class of 2020 who helped with the research for the episode. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast and let us know how we're doing. Email 13 at colgate.edu, that's 13 the number, with your thoughts or ideas. Let us know if you have any questions you'd like to have answered. Have a wonderful week, and as always, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Prince. Executive producer Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.